Welcome back to Beyond Texas, where we continue with our interview of the incomparable Paul Craddock. This is part two concerning his best-selling new book, Spare Parts, the story of medicine through the history of transplant surgery. It's currently number two on Amazon in transplant surgery and the number two book about organ transplants. And this title, beautifully narrated by Paul, is in the top 10% of all books on Audible. It has a four and a half star rating. It's a great read and a great listen. Pick it up, download it. You'll be thoroughly entertained while getting a fine, specialized British education on the matter. Dr. Lindsay Ferris says, This book is delightful and disturbing. A thoroughly engrossing read. His debut book, Spare Parts, was described by the New York Times as a thrilling and often terrifying ride. It was a Daily Mail book of the week and won the special commendation in the Royal Society of Literature's Giles St. Alban Awards. Dr. Craddock has lectured widely on the cultural history of transplant surgery and the history of medicine. He is a Science Museum Group Senior Research Associate an Honorary Senior Research Associate at University College London, and a Visiting Lecturer at Imperial College London. Now, on with part two of our interview. What's happening with the idea of growing your own organs for transplant? Oh, lots, of, lots is happening. Lots of, lots of things are happening. Um, one of the things I mentioned in the book, which has been most inspiring for me, is this work happening, well, in America, in the Worcester Polytechnic Institute and in Harvard now, where they're decellulizing um, spinach leaves. And they're, the word, they are populating those remaining scaffolds with human heart cells. Because, you know, you, you can, technically, you can print an organ, I suppose, but the resolution is not high enough at the moment. No printer can print capillaries, for instance. Mm-hmm. But you can use structures that already exist in nature. So this genius um, team um, over at Worcester Polytechnic Institute have, have, have done just that. And they've, they've removed the cells from the spinach leaf and, and populated it with human heart cells. You know, and you, can, you could patch a hole in the heart with, with that. Wow. And it's not, it's not I, don't, I don't think it's clinically um, ready yeah, I don't think it's ready for clinical application yet. Mm-hmm. I've, I've not spoken to this group mm-hmm. in a few months, um, but um, you know the technology is there, and they're working mm-hmm. on using uh, spinach leaves with skin cells as well, which brings it back in quite a nice circle, doesn't it? I think mm-hmm. uh, when you've got this idea of transplant and its association with horticulture, mm-hmm. we started yes, by that's talking true. about. Uh, we started by talking about the uh, transposition of the horticultural grafting technique being the start of modern transplant. And where we are now is using structures found in plants and, and applying those yes, to human bodies. That's, that's fascinating. The origin of the term graft comes from grave, which is a marking in the ground, and it's, it's linked to graphite as well. It's all about mark making. Well, you know, when I was uh, when I was a young man working in radio, uh, it, 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 it's applicable because we would make marks on tape and cut and then splice, and mm. so it was really literally that. Yes, yeah, yeah. But that, you're absolutely right. It is literally a transplant. Yeah, we're mm. we're we're grabbing this moment in time, and then we're shifting it to another place in time. Well, do you know the you know the idiom hard graft? That that comes from digging graves. Mm. That's that's a root that I was mentioning. Um, it was hard work to dig the graves. Oh, yeah. It's hard graft. 
I just find that very interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love those. I love the you know the history of language as how it explains things mm. by virtue of its etymology. It's really fascinating. I'm glad you, you talked about grafting the heart because uh, you know I myself am alive uh, mm. because a guy you mentioned in your book, Doctor Denton Cooley, he did the first uh, mechanical transplant, mechanical heart. Yes. He inserted. Yeah. And uh, he was my surgeon. When I was eight years old, I had an atrial septal defect, wow. and they had to go in there and patch the heart. You know, to mm. put a patch in there. Uh, well, actually, it wasn't a patch. I'm sorry. They, they use a patch today. They they sewed it together. Actually, but in that, mm. those days, mm. today, of course, they can do that same surgery at uh, a decent hospital in a big city with an outpatient. <laughs> you know, they just do it with practically um, uninvasively, and they don't cut up. They don't. In my time, they. Cut open the chest. They cut open the heart. They put you on a heart lung machine, you know. And uh, but still, if they hadn't had that technology around, if I'd been born ten years earlier, I wouldn't be talking to you now. So I, yes. I was lucky to be saved did, by did one you, of the pioneers in your book. Oh, wonderful! Did did you you did you visit him? Oh yes, yes. I I went uh, back many many years later when I was. When I was about fifty-five, and 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 he was ninety, I think at the time, but he was still seeing patients. He wasn't wow. operating anymore because wow. his hands were gnarled by arthritis mm. at that point. But uh, he was a, a wonderfully engaging, uh, charming man. So happy to see me. <laughs> he said it's he said it's oh. just delightful to see people I operated on when they were young, living a full life, mm. robust and healthy, and. He wasn't, uh, you know, egotistical uh, about it. He was just, I remember he, he explained the surgery to me. He said, well, he said, it's really pretty simple. You know, just like you take a, a thread and a sewing <laughs> needle and I just sewed up that little hole and, you know, you, you did the rest. So, and actually that brings me to your, your book again, because a lot of the advances in, in transplantation had to do with sewing, right? So the beginning of the, 19th century, most transplants had sort of fizzled out. Mm -hmm. um, we had some human-to-human -human blood transfusions, the first human-to-human -human blood transfusions, which um, were hit and miss because of blood typing. We didn't know about blood typing back then. Um, so they'd be used in emergency situations in pregnancies, for example, when the woman had lost a lot of, uh, a lot of blood, uh, had a hemorrhage. And sometimes it would thankfully save their life. Throughout the 19th century, though, we have a lot of advances in scientific medicine. We have bacteriology, we have virology, we have um, immunology, we have um, x-rays as well. We have all these scientific advances changing the way that medicine is practiced completely beyond recognition. And by the end of that century, by the end of the 19th century, no transplants really were taking place, apart from skin grafting, you know, mm -hmm. things that have have been working and sort of puttering along, so to speak, in the background. Um, but no real advances. And it looked like it was a barbaric kind of procedure in the face of all this, you know, all the lab coat <laughs> kind uh -huh. of um, science. But two things happened at the beginning of the, of the 20th century in the same, in the space of the same year. One of those um, advances was the discovery of blood typing. So Carl Landsteiner, who was an immunologist and so one of these uh, medical scientists, medically inclined scientists, 
uh, from the 19th century, um, he discovered that blood could be understood in types. So sometimes a human-to-human blood transfusion would work because they were the same blood type. Other times, the blood of one person would react against the blood of another, and mm-hmm. the molecules would clump together or explode, or some you know some reaction would take place. So that that, that mechanism of bodily compatibility was recognised in 1901. Not being really much was done with it for a while, but it was recognised then. Also in 1901 was the technique to sew together blood vessels that became perfected in that. Um, at that time. In 1901, a, a surgeon called Alexi Carell um, came up with a technique to effectively sew together blood vessels, vascular anastomosis. So Carell won a Nobel Prize for this discovery, mm-hmm. this technique. What I discovered reading all of his biographies is that occasionally he would men- they would mention um, that he was taught by a seamstress or he was inspired by a seamstress, or, you know, he saw a seamstress. So mm-hmm. a seamstress sort of kept being mentioned, and in, in, in a few biographies, they gave her name, and it was Marianne LaRoudier. Now, they sort of framed this as Carell being such a genius that he couldn't learn from anybody of a lesser uh, caliber. But I decided to ask the question, um, what could he have learned from her, but not from anybody else? So I looked up some of her work, and she's a really famous embroiderer. She won medals at the various, you know, the Chicago Exposition in Amsterdam as well, and and some of her works owned by the Vatican. Um, She did the gold thread embroidery on the Opera House curtains in the Paris Opera House. She was a big deal. Um, So I worked with an embroiderer to look at both Carell's technique and the work that this famous embroiderer, Marianne Le Roudier, did. And we compared them, and we came up with a few, a few advanced sort of, well, advanced ways of manipulating thread and uh, different materials that, that, that were present in both, both uh, practitioners' mm-hmm. work. So it's things like working one-handed, Things like um, making the thread go on the outside of a vessel rather than inside it comes from the gold embroidery. Actually, you, do, you know you don't want to waste the gold thread on the inside of the vessel, mm-hmm. on, on the inside of a, uh, of a of a piece of art. Right. Um, so you need techniques to put it on the outside and to waste as little as possible. So all of these kinds of techniques were combined and 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 applied. Uh, to human bodies by Alexis Carrel, but they emerged from 19th century French embroidery. And I, th- I think that we, when we're talking about the origin of organ transplants, we owe a, a kind of a, we owe a debt to French embroidery, mm-hmm. and we should recognize yes. Yes. the influence, we should recognize the influence that it had on the history of surgery, and especially this woman, Marianne Le Roudier, who's been up to this point, she's been unacknowledged in this um, arena. Were they able to determine uh, what kinds of fabrics were uh, analogous to human tissue so they knew what to practice on? They practiced on cigarette papers, which um, a, 
uh, a surgeon colleague of mine tells me it feels very much like an artery. So it tears easily. And that's another wow. one of those sets of techniques. Working wow. on fabrics with no warp and weft, nothing to keep the thread from moving. So it's a very, mm. very difficult thing to, to sew into a cigarette paper because <sighs> every, every, or an artery, <laughs> because yeah. every mistake will make a hole and you can't repair it. Oh. My goodness, cigarette paper? That's just unfathomable that you could sew with sew that together with another cigarette paper. I actually, I actually, that's, well, I, I well, they, they put stitches in them. So he could, mm-hmm. Carell could do 500 stitches in one cigarette paper. Oh I've got to say, Fleur, who is, is one of the finest embroiderers in Britain, uh, she could do 600, but she's one of mm-hmm. the finest embroiderers in Britain, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I guess the you know the big daddy of transplants was heart transplants, right? Once you got to heart transplants, uh, you because they they did liver, they did uh, uh, kidneys, and 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 I don't know if they did lungs. Did they do lungs and hearts together? Was that the first time they ever did lungs? Oh, they do lungs and hearts together sometimes. That's mm-hmm. because it's um, it's easier um, than than you know disconnecting those two organs from one another. Uh, but sometimes you have what they call a domino transplant, where, if I can get this right, mm-hmm. uh, where you would take the heart and lungs out of one person, out of a cadaver, uh-huh. and you would replace someone else's heart and lungs if their lungs weren't working, for instance, and then use the heart that had been, the fine heart that had been explanted from the original donor and transplant that. Um, and it's called a domino transplant. But you sort of you move from one person to mm-hmm. another. Well, well, but the history of heart transplants is, is a horrific uh, kind of history because they failed a lot before they finally mm-hmm. figured it out, right? And it was the rejection was the big problem. Rejection was the big problem. Yes. Um, oh, it was. Well, it, it was conceived of in the sixties as a as a kind of and the fifties and sixties as a kind of race that the surgeons saw themselves as competing against one another. Uh, they always had the patient in their mind, of course, but um, Bernard, Christian Bernard, who was the one who eventually won that race, um, confessed in his memoirs that um, what really hurt is the ego. Uh-huh. That he's, he's, he's the one who, who made the mistake. When he, when he failed, his ego hurt. It wasn't so much the patient in his own oh, mind. My. Yeah, he became a kind of rock star, right, for being he the first to achieve star, that. Yeah. And he—he mm, he didn't even go to the funeral of his first successful oh, patient because no. he was—he 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 was flown to America to be fated. Oh, and he mm. and he dated Sophia Loren. But I, he did. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, yes, he yeah. did date Sophia Loren. <laughs> There's some interesting pictures of him. But I've got to say, at that point, though, you mentioned uh, Denton Cooley uh-huh. and how lovely he was. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I know people who've worked with um, who worked with Bernard and say he was not lovely. He was an horrible person uh-huh. to work with. But uh, when I, I, another thing that I do uh, or have done in the past is, is to make uh, films with and about um, figures in the history of medicine. And mm-hmm. one of those people was uh, was John Wickham, and mm-hmm. he's one of the people who were instrumental in, in introducing keyhole surgery, laparoscopic surgery, into general medicine. And he's, he's, been very, he's not been very well recognized for that, actually. Mm-hmm. But it was a new way of working, you know, working with radiologists 
working um, uh, with an an anaesthetist very closely in a much closer way than you usually would. And, you know, so he's, I wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for his work. Mm-hmm. But I was born prematurely and oh. <laughs> all kinds of advances wouldn't have happened um, if it wasn't for his work. Mm-hmm. And I asked him on camera before he died, he died just a few years ago. And I said, John, so given all of this impact you've had on people's lives, what, how would you like to be remembered? And he very sweetly and genuinely said, well, I hope that, I hope I've saved a few people a bit of bother. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Well, you can say that, John. I love that. Isn't that lovely? That's so British. It is, isn't it? It's very British. That's wonderful. A bit of bother. I, I just love I love understatement. You know, it's it's such a a, a beautiful mm. art form. The understatement, yes. this is so good. A bit of bother. Right, wonderful, <laughs> John. A bit of bother. Mm. He's in my acknowledgments because he he was very enthusiastic mm. about about Spare Park, um, um, but he died before he could see the end of it. What I love about your book in particular is it is it isn't uh, you know just science. It has a lot of science in it. But it is also mm-hmm. uh, humanities. It is anthropology and sociology, and um, you know, a beautiful history that that uh, underpins it all. And humor, although macabre sometimes, mm-hmm. but that's okay. I like that. That's the thing. You see, when I was uh, when I was when I was researching fair parts, you sort of come mm-hmm. across these weird practices, like mm-hmm. you know, you have this one of the blood transfusion deniers, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you could say. His brother fell ill with typhoid fever, and he decided to put a pigeon on his head, gutted pigeon. It will um, it will heat his cool blood. And I just sort of I started reading it, going, "Yeah, that's fine. That's <laughs> the kind of thing they used to do." But Patricia just sort of said, "That's weird. Why would why would they do that?" And, and it sort of shifted. This is this is how I, I sort of made the shift from academic writing to to. Um, so to speak, popularizing. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's sort of being able to look at this weird stuff through the eyes of someone who hasn't read about it a lot and doesn't sort of just accept that putting a pigeon, a gutted pigeon on your head <laughs> is a sensible, ever ever sounded like a sensible idea. <laughs> and so uh, <laughs> I think that uh, at this point I'm going to need to to um, end our formal interview because uh, I want to give people something to learn when they read the book so we don't cover it all. <laughs> but, oh, absolutely, yeah. But it's been, I thank you so much for uh, taking the time to join us, especially now that you're a rock star in New York with your best selling book. I, I'm grateful that you had the time to join me in my, in my podcast. <laughs> Oh, any time, WF. It's wonderful talking to you. It's been such a joy. Thank you. You're welcome. What a marvelous book by a fascinating scholar. The book, once more, is Spare Parts by Paul Craddock, published by St. Martin's Press. It's in hardback ebook and available on Audible. This is Beyond Texas. I'm WF Strong. Write me anytime at WF Strong Podcast at gmail.com. Cheers.